0: Please join me in the prayer of, for illumination. Let us pray. May the blessing of God give us strength for the journey made. May the spirit of wisdom give us vision for the road. May the love of Christ make us caring companions. So to give it form to be its place. 14, 1 through 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and set up camp in front of Piharoth, between Migdol and the sea in front of Balzathon. You should set up camp in front of it by the sea. Pharaoh will think to himself, The Israelites are lost and confused in the land, the desert.'" is trapped, has trapped them. I'll make Pharaoh stubborn, and he'll chase them. I'll gain honor at the expense of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, and they did exactly that. When Egypt's king was told that the people had run away, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people. They said what have we done letting Israel go free from these their slavery to us? So he sent the forth his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 el- chariots and all of Egypt's other chariots with captain on all of them. The Lord made Pharaoh Egypt's King Stubborn, and he chased the Israelites who were leaving confidently. The Egyptians included all the Pharaoh's horses, drawn chariots. His clara, 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 and his army ch- chased them and caught up with them as they were camped by the sea by Piharoth in front of Baal-zephon. As Pharaoh drew closer, the Israelites looked back and saw the Egyptians marching toward them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you took us away to die? in the desert what have you done to us by bringing us to out of egypt like this didn't we tell you the same thing in egypt leave us alone let us work for the egyptians it would have been better for us to work for the egyptians than to die in the desert but moses said to the people don't be afraid Stand your ground and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, will, you will never ever see again. The Lord will fight for you. You just keep still. Thank you. Thank, thanks be to God.
1: I think they get lots of points because I don't like to say Baal Zafran either. <coughs> Sometime, when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I have made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Others have come in their slow way into my thought, and some have tried to help or hurt. Ask me what difference their strongest love or hate made. I will listen to what you say. You and I can turn and look at the silent river and wait. We know the current is there, hidden, and there are comings and goings from miles away that hold the stillness exactly before us. What the river says, that is what I say. The first time I read that, I was a freshman in college. Um, The book, Let Your Life Speak, by Parker Palmer, had been assigned to me as part of the church careers program at Centenary College. It was one of the first books I had to read. Um, I got exactly to the end of that poem, which begins the book. We are literally page one here. Um, I took a look at it. I said, yep. Yep closed the book, I put it down, and I don't think I picked it up again for six years. (laughs) As a freshman in college, that, that sense of sitting and waiting and wondering felt like kind of a waste of time. I was not the kind of student that was wandering around trying to find themselves in college. Centenary is not that kind of college. They have the kind of majors that require you to take 18 hours a semester. There is not a lot of time for wandering or wandering. So instead, I looked at the stack of seven books I had to read for David Otto's Christian education class and decided maybe those would serve me better than Parker Palmer. See, nobody told me that Parker Palmer is one of the foremost experts on spiritual direction in our generation. And nobody told me that Let Your Life Speak, all tiny 117 itty-bitty pages of it, is literally still to this day the first thing that comes up when you type it into Google. If you type Parker Palmer into Google, you will get this book first. Because Beyond Mere Christianity... It is probably one of the greatest spiritual classics of the 20th century. They just handed me the book, said, hey, you ought to read this. I said, hey, I've got a lot of things I have to read. I don't really need to listen to my life. I have a vocation. I have a plan. Would you like to see my color-coded spreadsheet?" I had it charted out. I had it mapped. I knew every class I needed to take. I knew the internships that I was up for and wanted to do. I knew what I was going to do for the next four years, and then the four years after that, and then maybe we might think about grad school in eight years, and there was a chart and a step every bit of the way, and sometimes along the way through college, there were there were little changes. They closed the Christian ed program, so I had to change my major, but it was okay. We could map enough of the classes over. I could still graduate on time, and and I changed my internships. I wasn't doing youth, but I was doing children, but then I came back to doing youth, and every time I felt like, oh, maybe the plan might be a little fuzzy. Nope, another door would open, and I would just move, and I just went from one lily pad to the next lily pad to the next lily pad, and there were small changes, but there was always a plan. Anybody like to have the plan, the chart, Come on, people, I know you have Gantt sheets. You do. I've seen them. <laughs> Sometimes in life, we really, really like to have a plan, to have it charted out, to be ready to go. And I followed the plan all the way through college into grad school. I got to Chicago. It was great. I kept you know, my A's up, so I had my scholarship. I had great internships. And I got all the way to May 2009. And I was so excited. I graduated from Garrett Evangelical on May 15th, 2009. I had a full-time job. I had a serious boyfriend. I had a great apartment in Chicago. I had a plan for the next five years. We were ready to go and do big things for Jesus. May 15th, I have the entire world figured out. May 17th, I'm unemployed. May 20th, my boyfriend, who had gone home for the weekend to visit his parents in Indiana, calls to say, hey, could I pack up his stuff? He's not coming back. (laughs) I am stuck, unemployed, newly single. All my friends are gone for summer. I've graduated from seminary, so all the support system has gone whoosh. Suddenly, the plan doesn't feel like a plan anymore. So I do exactly what I have been trained to do, which is look around and grab the next thing to do. I start putting together my resume. I start calling out contacts. I know there's got to be job openings. Lots of people have lost their intern. We'll find something. And one of my favorite professors looks at me and says, are you crazy? He said, your whole life just turned inside out in a matter of a week, and you think you're just going to pick up and run to the next thing? Have you lost your mind? Did we teach you nothing? He said, just stop. Because I promise you, whatever you do right now is just going to be grief. Just stop. Do you have severance? Yes, sir, I have severance. Great. Take two weeks and do nothing. I thought he had lost his mind. (laughs) I have a 108-hour undergraduate degree and a 74-hour master's degree. I hadn't done nothing since I was a sophomore in high school. (laughs) Nothing. But he was a wise man, so I took a deep breath. And for two weeks, I watched a lot of Doctor Who. And I played a lot of video games. And somewhere in the bottom of a box, I found this little book that Church Careers had tried to get me to read all those years ago. And I opened it up. And I suddenly found myself asking whether or not All I had done to that point was really my life. I felt stuck and frozen, and I had no idea what was next. It's kind of the same place that we find the Israelites in today. If you know the story of Israel, You know that their great father was Abraham, that a promise was made to Abraham that they would have a future, that they would be a nation. But as Abraham was getting older, he passed it on to his children. And in his children's lifetime, there came a famine, and they had to go to Egypt if they wanted to survive. And that went well for a while. But within a generation, the people who had had a great promise and a great plan became slaves in a foreign nation. And they had been slaves for a long time. And pharaohs got crueler and crueler, and they had cried out to God to send them a savior. And God found a stuttering, older shepherd on a mountain in the wilderness and sent him to Pharaoh and said, Moses, you tell that Pharaoh that I said, let my people go. It's a bit of an odd plan, but Moses did it. Pharaoh didn't listen the first time, or the second time, or the fifth time, the seventh time, or the ninth time. But somewhere after the water had turned to blood and the frogs had choked the river and the locust had eaten all the crops and the firstborn children had passed away, Pharaoh finally said, you know what, take your stuff and go. Just get out. And the Israelites got the thing that they had been praying for for so long. The plan was back on track and they picked up their stuff and they headed out of Egypt and they went into the desert and then somehow God said, no wait, go this way through the desert and they went that way. And then they said, no, go this way through the desert and camp on the edge of the lake that is pretty much back inside of Egyptian territory. Other one, first one. Um, yeah, they, they they embark on a journey that's gonna look a little bit like this. Now, I know you can't see all the names and places. It's good. What you need is the colored lines. See the the orange line near the top. That's how any sane and rational person crosses the desert. This is the caravan route. You stay reasonably inside of water. The fastest the fastest way between two points is a excellent. Yes. You see, the purple line, that's the route the Israelites actually take through the desert. No appearance of straight line about it. At this point, they have already wandered around, and we haven't even really gotten into the desert proper yet. So it's no wonder that Pharaoh says, See, they're just lost without us. Let's go get them back. We don't really want to make bricks on our own, do we? We need somebody to do the hard labor. (laughs) So Pharaoh sends his army out. Now, if you're an Israelite and you've been traveling a few weeks with Moses, your journey feels a little bit more like, like this. You've done a lot of wandering around. You haven't gotten any further, really, than where you started. You thought the plan was on track. We are going out of Egypt into the promised land, and life is going to be great. This is the plan. We have a chart. We are ready to go. And yet we find ourselves stuck between a desert and a sea and an army bearing down on us. Scholars like to make a big deal about the fact that the word chariot appears in these 14 verses something like six times. That seems like a strange, unique, textual quirk for us. But a chariot was a big deal in the ancient world. Only the most technologically advanced, richest, most powerful armies had a significant number of chariots. To say that the chariots are bearing down on us is like saying martial tanks are about to run over immigrants in rowboats. They are not in a good place. There was a plan, but the wheels have clearly come off that thing. And we're not sure what to do next. We're certainly stuck. Can't go left, can't go right. Thinking about going back to Egypt, it wasn't so great, but at least not great is better than dead. Can't go forward, right? Right? Anybody want to guess what comes after this moment? ha the parting of the Red Sea. That's right. We usually skip over the first part of chapter 14 because we want to get to the big thing at the end. God is about to do a miracle beyond all belief. In fact, he's about to do the biggest miracle the Israelites have ever seen, the miracle that they will tell their children about, their grandchildren about. This story, the end of chapter 14, will become the foundation for everything they are going forward. But we forget that in that moment, right before, they had no way to possibly imagine the path that God had set forth for them. Desert on the left, desert on the right. Army bearing down, sea in front. They see no way forward. Every instinct says run, surrender, do something, right? We call it that fight or flight in the back of your head. Just do something. And what does God say? Be still. The verbs are stop, stop watch be still in fact be still the lord will fight for you in those moments when the wheels come off the train when the plan has gone beyond all recognition our instinct is fight or flight to do to do to do but those are often the moments when we have to stop if we want to know what the best next step is. There's an old military adage that says, uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Business people like to say, no plan survives first contact with implementation. The truth is, we can make plans all you want, but if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. (laughs) Too often, we come to this place where we have done and done and done and planned and imagined, but our vision of what is possible is limited. We often work ourselves into this place where there is no good option on the left and no good option on the right. And all of the priorities and the worries and the concerns are bearing down on us like the chariots. And we see no way forward. And God says, in that moment, I got this. Be still, because it's not your plans that matter. It's mine. On May twentieth, two 2009, I was newly single unemployed, kind of wondering where the next rent was coming from after the severance was done. It was not a great time to be a Kate Walker. I read Let Your Life Speak all the way through this time. It's amazing when you read the whole book. And what I found was not advice. What I found was not the next thing to do. And I was a little mad about that. What I found was advice to just be still and let the answers come to me. If you had asked me on May 21st if I was interested in moving to Texas, I would have laughed at you. I am from Louisiana. And we all know that if a state touches your state, you make fun of them, right? It's just the way of the world. Texans make fun of Louisiana and Oklahoma. You know you do it. OK, so I'm from Louisiana. You Texans, you're the people with the hats and the boots and the funny accents. Thank you, John. I would never move to Texas. I would lived in Shreveport. That was close enough, believe me. Why would I, why would I go to Texas? And if you had told me that the, uh, the friend from college that had seen my posts about the ravaged amount of Doctor Who I was watching, um, the guy that was living in Miami, that we would get married in Texas, <laughs> I definitely would have laughed at you. And if you had told me that I would be on track for ordination, as an elder in the United Methodist Church. Oh, dear, that took a whole nother reading of Let Your Life Speak before we were ready for that one. That was time number three through the book. I could not imagine the way forward, the grace that God had prepared for me, it had no concept of what it could be. In fact, a few weeks after I lost my job, I was offered another youth position just north of Chicago. It was a church. It was a a great opportunity. It was two congregations in one church. One was English-speaking. One was Korean. So it was like this whole great new area of ministry. It was really exciting. It was going to be more money than I had been making. I didn't have to move out of my apartment. But at that point, as I sat on the beach in Chicago, and I said, yeah, they have beaches, and I said is this really the right thing? I mean, it was what I wanted to do, right? It would pay the bills, it would be ministry, it would be perfect. But I couldn't imagine stepping back into a church just yet. And as much as it hurt to pick up that phone, I called and I did the scariest thing I've ever done. I turned down a job. (laughs) And I packed my boxes, because $12,000 at CVS is not enough to pay the bills in Chicago. And I moved back in with my parents. (laughs) That's right, quintessential millennial. I moved back in with my parents in Louisiana. And a week later, I got a call from Lake Jackson, Texas. A church I'd never heard of, a place I'd never heard of. They'd seen my resume online Would I come and interview. I've been here six years. It's the longest I've ever been anywhere. (laughs) Oh wow, y'all don't have to applaud that, that's fine. I've been here six years. It's the longest I've ever been anywhere. And I think I was talking to Jim Hill after the first service. We can agree that we have taken quite the journey together in those last six years. But in May of 2009, I could not have imagined what God had in store. And if I had jumped in and grabbed and done the next thing and done the next thing and done the next thing, I don't know where it would be, but it certainly wouldn't be here and I would have missed all the wonderfulness that this is. I might have missed the wonderfulness this is. When you get stuck on the edge of the Red Sea, it is counterintuitive to everything we are, but the grace is. God says, be still. Take a breath. I'm going to do the fighting now. It is a hard thing, a very hard thing. But it will lead you to places you could not have dreamed of, sometimes in miraculous ways. In the name of the Father,